Welcome to the third annual virtual aquaponic cannabis conference. Please support these companies. They took the time to educate us during this conference. All right. Um, next up, we have Tanner Stewart and Cara from Stewart Farms. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, Steve, how you doing, man? Having us. I'm doing well. Uh, for those of you that aren't aware, uh, uh, Stuart Farms is a, a aquaponics facility up in, in Canada. Um, we've had them on last year, and uh, definitely looking forward to their presentation again this year. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. No. Thanks. Uh, <clears throat> thanks for uh, having us. You know, I. I uh, uh, it's it's uh, really special for us to have a venue at least once a year uh, right now to uh, take a look at what we did and absorb it ourselves. And then Kara, she had to prep me for this and I had to get my brain back into science mode and had a business mode, which is honestly like a massage on the brain. <laughs> so it's good to be here, man. Very good. Um, so I guess uh, I'll give a intro to me the company and then i'll uh turn it over to Kara. so for any of you that uh didn't see last year my name is tanner stewart ceo of stewart farms i'm here with Kara nordstrom our chemist who has our latest r d project to present to all of you today uh quick personal background i've been an entrepreneur for 17 years eight years ago i started an aquaponics farming in leafy greens I was 100% focused on spinach, kale, arugula, Swiss chard, and a 12-story uh, nutrient film technique, leafy green system, uh, uh, fully closed-loop aquaponic system. So a lot of the things that informed the direction of Stewart Farms today started in that leafy green operation eight years ago. Uh, since 2018, I've been all in on cannabis in aquaponics with living soil. Uh, little bit about a uh, little bit about Stuart farms I'll just share my uh, share my screen here with you guys see if I can get this uh, get this working here oh there we go I gotta press the share button there we go pardon uh all right I don't know if you guys are you guys seeing what I'm trying to show you okay so uh Stuart Farms has two lines of products here in Canada. First is our wellness line of products under our brand Rebound. We sell infused bath bombs, pain creams, Epsom salts. We just got into sublingual sprays, uh, high potency CBD sublingual spray and organic MCT oil. Uh, in the wellness category, we're number one in British Columbia. These are This is as of coming into the fall here. And we're number five in Canada. I fully expect us to be number one in Canada in the wellness category by the end of 2023. Of course, uh, we're here to talk about the uh, cultivation side of our business. Um, so all of our, all of our uh, craft cannabis is getting transitioned to sell and operate under our newly 2023 launching brand, East Coast Buds, because you can always rely on your East Coast Buds. That's the uh, that's the line, at least. And uh, 
Uh, and our premier strain, which we didn't do this research project on, uh, but uh, but Daily Grape is launching in British Columbia, Nova Scotia, uh, under the East Coast Buds brand. Uh, this is a absolutely gorgeous genetic. And I, I just want to throw in here, actually, because Aqualitas, we're, we're close friends with Aqualitas. We do a lot of we do a lot of uh, friendly work together. They're one province over in Nova Scotia. We're in New Brunswick. I know Myrna, their CEO, very well. Uh, happy to be following up that presentation with ours. We actually won third place with our daily grape in that same cannabis cup that Aqualitas won first place in with their Queen Sangria. And for all of us living soil, microbial, aquaponic geeks who are live streaming this right now and who's gonna be watching this on the recording later, the significance of that is there was 13 entrants from all across Canada, really, really strong entrants. And two of the three winning genetics were cultivated by living soil aquaponics growers and then a, a hydroponic grower snuck into second place there. But we were the only two living soil uh, growers with an aquaponic fed system. We were the, we were the only two living, living growers, period. Everybody else was aquaponically driven and we placed first and third. Now, we all know the right selection of genetic has a major component of that. However, when you're doing a 13 company blind taste test, nobody know, nobody knew who was who, you're just going off of flavor, smokeability, experience, and not really even experience, because when you smoke 13 genetics back to back, you're, you're just a level of high at that point, right? So you're just going off flavor. And so there was something tasty enough and special enough in our, flower that got us two of those three spots so so that cannot be uh underappreciated there you know and and I, I i put a quick comment in the chat there when uh the previous speaker just brought up the that, that meta-analysis or there's papers that indicate there wasn't a significant difference between hydroponics and aquaponics well that that depends on what they're comparing you're just comparing yield are you just comparing potency because the final and ultimate comparison is experience and flavor and what and that's those are very nuanced things to uh to look at so uh Stewart farms primary focus in an ongoing basis on research in aquaponics we are very microbiome focused uh specifically within the plant growth promoting microbial world so uh our research right now is very foundational uh we're moving our research as, as forward as fast as we can while balancing you know building a company from scratch and becoming commercially viable in the long term and we'll talk more about that 50 minutes from now on the uh, commercial aquaponics panel uh, but uh but we're so what i'm saying here is i'm not I wish we were moving faster with our research, but I'm still very happy, as you're gonna see here with this great presentation Kara put together, that we're moving forward. We're gonna keep our body of foundational uh, research going and uh, and just keep moving the dial forward while balancing all of the other challenges of uh, the cannabis industry in general and, and building a company. So with that, I'll turn it over to Kara to introduce herself and she can get right into the presentation. 
Hello, uh, as Tanner said, my name is Kara Nordstrom and I was originally uh, graduated in 2008 from the University of New Brunswick with an honors first class in chemistry and I study a lot of um, theoretical quantum chemistry so it doesn't really link up very well with the work I've been doing lately for Stewart Farms, but it did give me a little bit of background into just kind of uh, the idea of asking a lot of questions and then just trying to make sense of what you're seeing as results in a preliminary way. Um, I went on to teach for a while and now I've decided to kind of return to the field of science and I ended up with Stuart Farms kind of in this position trying to help them uh, keep pushing these projects forward as best as we could with what we had on hand all the time. I'm going to call it science on the fly, I think is what I'm going to describe what we do at Stuart Farms because everything we do is fast and it's gathered quickly and uh, and and you know, we do what we can with what we've got. So, so I like to call it, so say, just a synonym for what she said, I, I call it research in motion. I abbreviated okay, it to RIM. RIM, we were gonna call our company RIM. I Googled it, some company called Blackberry was called anyway, so we couldn't call ourselves research in motion, but. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna see if I can share my screen here and just go through the preliminary things that we've found so far. Uh, I came in at the tail end of the previous presentation. It looks like there would be a lot of useful information there that I could draw from uh, to kind of help direct where we're going to go in the future and maybe just get a little bit more context for some of the information I'm seeing. Uh, can people see that screen okay? Okay, so let me just see if I can figure out how to get it into. There we go. Okay, so we're going to start by just quickly summarizing where they were last year at this time. So uh, we have a small uh, aquaponic system that has Black Nile tilapia, and we've been kind of trying to look at the influence of cultivation effluent on the biomass, the wet mass of the cannabis yield. Uh, we'd like to be looking at some point into the cannabinoid acid concentrations as well and the terpene concentrations, but I'll talk more about some of the challenges we had in that area on cannabis sativa. So the study we did particularly pertained to a strain of dosi cake that we uh, were pretty fond of. So it's the basis of a larger study, as Tanner mentioned, to continue working forward into looking into the microbiome of um, the soil and the fish effluent and how those can work together to promote um, making nutrients in the soil more available to the plant at different stages of the plant's growth. So we chose Black Nile tilapia initially because they have we have a great set of genetics to begin with and because they're very, very resistant to disease. So it's relatively easy to raise them and to keep them on site uh, without a lot of issues. We had 400 or so. I think we ended up realizing we had a lot more than 400 when we ended up looking at our tanks a little more carefully. But at the time we had about 400 or thought we did. And we were capturing the effluent in this tank here on the side and because we're trying to do comparative studies where we're comparing what happens when we use the fish effluent versus when we use filtered tap water, uh, we come and gather the water that we need from the fish effluent tank to water our plants each time we're going to run a study. So Tanner's very that, proud of this room. <laughs> yeah, and I, I just want to throw a little more context in around this specific Black Nile tilapia genetic. There are very few pedigree genetic breeding programs for any fish in general. Uh, salmon is the most widely uh, stabilized genetic in the world in the fish category across obviously various different genetics, but salmonoids. Uh, everything else is lesser in the entire fish kingdom, sturgeon and tilapia. So this genetic is one of the few uh, 
very stable uh, ninth generation disease free genetics. Uh, my my fish mentor Gary Chapman, they're his genetics. Uh, he is partners with a guy actually out of um, I think it's Arizona, uh, Damon Damon. Uh, not remembering his last name right now, but some of you might even buy your Americulture is the name of the company. So Americulture, some of you might even be familiar with Americulture. Uh, if you're buying a lot of tilapia fingerlings in general, they're an excellent uh, source for these genetics. Uh, you could probably get these same fingerlings from Americulture. I could follow an email up with uh, with Steve and uh, maybe give him that uh, information as well. But for us, using this genetic, there's no unknowns with it. It's got 20, 25 years of repeatable growth rates, repeated conversion, obviously progressively improving conversion rates and progressively improving generation after generation of uh, performance in the genetic, but a very, very stable fish genetics. So this is a, what I like to call a consistent variable in our system where it's a, it's a biological variable, but it's very consistent as a, as a baseline fish. Okay, thank you for that clarification. As I said, Tanner, he knows his fish and he's proud of uh, the fish that we have on site. So I always give him his opportunity to make sure everyone knows the great, the great fish we've got there. We all love them too. Um, okay, so the results of that experiment did seem to demonstrate initially that you would get improved yields with plants that were watered using at least some fish effluent. But one of the challenges we noticed during the grow was that there was some nutrient toxicity uh, observe, observed by the cultivation team. So in the terms of the way that the plants appeared and the, the leaves and the other things that they were noticing. Uh, and we were, we were wondering if that was caused by soil or if that was caused by the fish effluent. Uh, it, we ended up deciding to incorporate that into the continuation of this study a little bit. So you'll notice some changes into the way we've designed this secondary study. So the second study got carried out starting in May and we took 180 of the dosi cake genetic and we had them put into a media-based aquaponics where we were using either filtered water only for their entire growth cycle or the fish effluent for their entire growth cycle. And we had our soil A located for a few pots on each table, which would have been our previous soil, our control soil. And then we had a different soil, which I'm calling soil B, that we wanted to compare to see if uh, the soil or the fish water was the main cause of that nutrient toxicity that people were observing as they were caring for the plants. So the information that gave us the clue about the nutri nutrient toxicity beyond just the visual cues uh, was the result of a soil sample we had done. So as you can see here, so I realized that I need to move this because it's in the way of what I'm seeing. There we go. Uh, on the left, soil A, which is the one we had been using, has a very high level of nitrogen and phosphorus, which are both important to the cycle of uh, the cannabis plant as it grows, but it, you know, too much is not always a good thing, right? You want to find the sweet spot for every nutrient as you're growing. So we were wondering if you compare the amounts, there's about half as much nitrogen and there's about a tenth of the phosphorus. So we just wanted to see what kind of effect that would have. Uh, yes, okay. So the layout of the room, 180 plants, everything in blue was watered with filtered water. Everything in green was watered with only fish effluent. And as you can see, I just had a few control pots on the front of each table, and then everything else was in that new soil. That was based on the availability of the soil at the time. It would have been better 
to have a larger control sample. Um, but we had to work again, work with what we had access to at the time that the, the experiment was starting. Yeah. So to clarify a little bit here, uh, the, the control sample was the soil with the high toxicity that we used in last year's experiment. We just, we put a single line of, you know, the dosi cakes along the front as the supposed control. We already, we, we, we've already well established that that mixture of living soil was not conducive <laughs> to continuing with. Uh, so we eliminated, eliminated that from our process. Uh, that soil was deemed an inconsistent biological variable. Uh, so we are now with a more consistent uh, living soil. And that's what, that's what you're seeing here. So soil B. Okay. Uh, so what we noticed quickly is we noticed if you look at the top two rows, the filtered water versus the Nilotikus uh, effluent for the control, you do see about a 15 gram difference. But the more uh, interesting thing that we've discovered quickly here is just the massive difference between the two soils. So the yields were significantly larger when we switched to the new soil. You do see about a 10 gram difference as well with the, the, the fish effluent versus the filtered water in soil B as well. So we are seeing some slight increases in our, in our wet yield as we go. Uh, we wanted to look at that and see if we could find a little bit more meaning in those numbers. Again, this is just the very first time that we've looked at this soil. It's only the second time we've run this study formally and gathered a ton of data. So there's a lot more work to be done with this to figure out um, exactly what the trends we're seeing are, but it is the initial steps. So what I ended up doing is kind of developing a box plot. Uh, a box plot is just a very simple way of visualizing your data in 25% quarters. So each little section of a box plot represents roughly 25% of your data. So you see the box section and that black line in the middle would represent the median average of your data. And then the top half of the box is 25%, the bottom half of the box is 25%. And then these little small lines, I don't know if you can see my mouse on the screen, but these little small lines or tails coming out of either side represent roughly 25% of your data. And these dots represent outlier points that don't fit within the data statistically. Uh, so if we look at soil A and we compare filtered water to the fish effluent, we can see that the median yield is higher in the fish effluent, but we can also see that the potential yield gets a lot bigger as well, because you can see a large section of 25% of this data is well above the weights, which are listed kind of off to the left here on this axis. It's well above even the, the highest yielding non-outlier plant for the filtered water in the controls. If you jump to the next section, it's showing soil B, which is the new soil that we've brought into use. Um, both filtered and fish effluent have a significantly higher yield with an average much closer to 300 grams wet versus the soil A. And again, we see a little bit of a difference in the median masses. So let's just have a quick look at that. So we've determined the soil has a significant impact on that harvest mass. Uh, the fish effluent, it's less noticeable, but there's some potential encouraging details here. The first thing to observe is that if you look at the fish effluent watered plants, about 40% of the plants have an over 300 gram yield of wet mass plant and a top mass of about 375 grams. When you compare that to the filtered water, only 25% of the plants are hitting above 300 grams. Okay. When you look at our top 25 plants specifically, I didn't include this slide, 17 of them were watered with fish effluent. So that's well over half. 
there is more variance in the range. The highest high is higher, the lowest low is a little bit lower. So there's a larger variance overall in that fish effluent, but there is some potential uh, to see that you might be able to with some refinement of the method of fish water application, or if we can refine the fish effluent in other ways, we might be able to maximize this yield even more. Uh, the other thing that I didn't include in the PowerPoint, but that we, we noticed kind of observationally is that the plants that were getting fish effluent held out a little bit longer before they were showing signs of needing a little bit of chemical amendment during the, the growth cycle. So the other thing that we're hoping that we'll be able to do at some point as we continue moving forward, uh, the wet harvest yield is currently about 3% higher if we look at soil B. Okay, so this median versus the one to the right, it's about 3% higher. But if we could, you, uh, refine our fish water so that all I'm doing is pushing that yield average up to 300, that would represent an 8% higher yield overall. And if we could ambitiously even get up to the higher end of the quartile to the 320 gram wet harvest mass, the increase is going to jump to about 15%. So one of the things we're going to be looking at moving forward is what are things we can do to improve the quality of the fish effluent, whether that's feeding the fish something different, whether that's uh, doing something to improve the quality of the fish effluent as it's coming through our system there's going to be questions that we have to ask there and look into and kind of test as well if it might be as simple as changing when we're adding the fish effluent to the to the cannabis plants that could be part of the process as well so there's questions but we're just trying to highlight that there's some potential here for some significant increases as we go we are seeing slight increases now um, another question I was wondering that people might have is that does this carry through to your dry yields? And if I compare my dry yields, they're about 3.5% higher overall uh, for the fish effluent water plants versus the filtered water plants. Uh, potency, we unfortunately had some struggles being able to find any meaningful data. Um, the tool we have on site right now is very useful in terms of being able to kind of highlight promising phenotypes during the phenotype hunting phase because it can give you a reasonably accurate assessment of the types of cannabinoid potency level you're going to see. But when you're trying to compare plant to plant within one strain, it doesn't have enough precision or accuracy to kind of give you um, meaningful differences, I think. So we are able to use it as a good screening tool when we're going through trying to decide which of Tanner's genetics we want to study in more detail and which ones we want to keep off to the side for the time being. But we do need to spend some more time uh, studying the effect on cannabinoids and terpenes based on where we are right now. It looks like Tanner has something to say. Yeah, so just before we move, before we uh, parade off into microbial land here, which is the next <laughs> section, uh, Steve, does anybody have any, maybe go back to that chart real quick, Kara, back one slide. Does, does anybody have any questions on this yield information or these charts or this chart? It was one question, how much extra cost slash time did the fish effluent add on? Um, it's not significant. The way we typically do it right now, it takes maybe 10 minutes to get the water into the barrel at the beginning, but then all we're doing is we're connecting a hose fitting, um, to a pump that's in the fish water and then you can go around and water the plants exactly the same way if you're hand watering plants to begin with. So um, at, at, for us, it's not adding a significant amount of time, just the 10 minutes it takes to gather the fish effluent at the beginning. In terms of maintaining the fish system, I can't really answer the question there. Tanner would have a better idea of the cost of maintaining the fish system. Yeah, well, I mean, the, you know, for us, the fish system is obviously a research-focused system as opposed to a commercially viable fish system. So there's a overarching cost of that 
for our company. Luckily, in Canada, we have a series of quite significant and well-structured research grant programs and funding initiatives. So luckily, we're able to get all of this research subsidized uh, in concert with our commercial activities. But, but to Kara's point, once you get past the fish system, once you extract the effluent from the fish system, it's just integrated. It's, it's no different than a hydroponic system. But let's think about that operationally. So let's compare just quickly a entire hydro system versus an entire aquaponic system. You have barrels and tanks and you've got to control the uh, inputs of all of your NPKs individually and 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 or decide what what pre-mixed nutrients you're using and you have to monitor the ph and in, in real time uh so with living soil added into at least this equation in particular uh we save a lot of time versus a hydroponic system um in a lot of ways as well so um it's really just structured you know it's, it depends on how your company structured right from the very, very beginning right Okay. It's the only question I saw as Great. far as that goes. Let's go to let's go to microbland. Okay, let's go to microbland. Um, <laughs> okay, so soil testing, and again, this is where things got a little bit more challenging for me because, again, full disclosure, my background is chemistry, not biology. We do have a biologist on site um, that helps kind of work through. But this was kind of my baby. I'm the person who had time to take this on a little bit. So we're going to look at some of the preliminary questions and ideas I drew from the data that we got. So for soil and water testing, uh, we took samples and sent them away to DAL actually, so that uh, ties up nicely with your previous speaker who also is at DAL, uh, to their integrated microbiology resource. Um, we did some PAC bio full-length amplicon sequencing, which to my understanding just targets specific segments of DNA that should be similar to different microbes and then is able to identify single base pair differences. So if you remember your high school biology and you remember the double helix about DNA, the base pairs um, are all unique here. And if you can get um, specific segments of the DNA within a microbe that should be the same in every microbe on some level and then continue reading past that, you can start to notice, okay, this one changes in the 10th base pair or in the 20th base pair. Um, so we're able to actually get species level identification of the microbes in the soil and water samples. Now, what that ended up meaning, actually, I'll talk about sample collection quickly. Um, to get the soils, I collected from fresh lots. Nothing had ever been put into these soils. They had never been used to grow anything. I took samples and I uh, froze them. And the fish water I took directly from the holding tank. It had never been used in any purpose. It was in that same holding tank that we go to collect the water when we're about to water the plants with the fish effluent. And then I took post-harvest samples. Uh, where I had enough pots, I took samples from 10 pots of each of the soil water combinations that we had. Uh, sometimes I took them from different locations around the room. Uh, there were some interesting questions relating microclimates inside grow rooms that I think someone could spend a lot of time studying as well if they really wanted to. But I took um, samples from 10 different pots and combined them and mixed them and then took a small sample from that that got froze, frozen. Everything was packed on dry ice and sent to Dow very quickly. And then they got the samples, told us they were okay. So I'm not sure what exactly I was expecting to get as results, but what I ended up getting back looked kind of like this. So at the phyla level of bacteria, that's the broadest categorization that starts to distinguish between different types of bacteria. I already had 26 different categories. 
okay? And then as you keep breaking that down through the taxonomic breakdown into the species level, you just kept seeing more and more and more and more and more diversity to the, to the point where I ended up having 742 different species identified in some capacity in at least one of the samples, okay? So each of these little tiny colors um, represents a species and typically I think the way it tries to set it up is the orange at the top would represent the same type of bacteria being shown in more than one sample. If it was appearing in more than one sample, they would all show up in the same relative locations. But you can see there's a ton of diversity here. And you know, I got this information back and was kind of like, okay, what am I gonna do with this information? This is a lot. And this is gonna take a lot of time uh, to interpret. So I decided to just try to look at the surface of the information. I went back to the basic phyla level and I'm just trying to see what are some things that we can identify here that will give us some future questions to ask and to start looking into? Okay, so the first initial impressions that I came up with uh, was just that at the phyla level, there were four categories that were present in all of our samples in great abundance. So we had a lot of proteobacteria, a lot of actinobacteria, uh, bacterioidota, and planktomycetota. Okay, so we have lots of those that are common to every sample. So what I decided to do next is I wanted to look at specifically our fish effluent, which is the sample labeled FW, so that's this one here, versus soil B, which is this one here. And I just wanted to say, is there a very simple statement I could make about whether or not using fish effluent is actually introducing anything into the soil that stays there when it's done, okay? And in this first time around, the impression that I'm getting, and I'm willing to certainly take feedback here if I've got this a little bit confused, but I think what I was seeing is that in the fish water, we started to see some slightly different phyla that I wasn't seeing in soil B. So I've highlighted, this one is called Firmicutes, this one is called Chloroflexi, this one is called Gematimonodota, and if you look at the fresh soil B that has never been used for any growth and never been watered with anything, you can see that it doesn't have those distinct colors. It has a tiny little bit of that orange color, but it has none of that blue and none of that pink, okay? If we look at where I'm analyzing the soil that has had that fish effluent introduced after the harvest, I'm suddenly starting to see that, that blue and that pink, okay? So all I'm wondering there is, does that mean I've introduced microbes? That's the next question we're asking. The only way we can really verify that is to kind of focus on that study in more detail and try to replicate it a few more times and see if we are consistently seeing that or if this was a false positive that's occurred somehow in the process. But it's the potential for wondering, have we actually managed to introduce some microbes that weren't there before, okay? Uh, the second part of that question though is, did we introduce helpful microbes? If we did introduce microbes, well, what are they? What did we put in there? And again, very surface level initial impressions. Um, nitrogen fixation, we're gonna need uh, microbes that are gonna help make nitrogen in the soil available to the cannabis plant. Uh, the primary genus that I was able to discover is important for that is called rhizobia, and that's found in proteobacteria. And remember, that was one of the ones that was common to all of our samples. So it seems like that's already present even just in the living soil uh, formulation that we had. But the second one that's important is going to be your phosphorus soluble, uh, solubilizer. So phosphorus in itself is inorganic, uh, and you need to find ways to make it soluble so it can be taken up by the plant's roots and then used in the flowering stage of the cycle. And that's typically found in the genus called Bacillus, and Bacillus is typically found in firmicutes. 
So if we come back here, we remember that one of the things that wasn't in soil B when it was dry was firmicutes, but now it is there when I've combined the fish effluent uh, with the soil, okay? So other questions. Are there firmicutes in every water? Maybe firmicutes exist in all water, whether it comes from a tap or whether it comes from a fish effluent pond. These are other questions we have to ask, okay? These are just initial impressions that we're looking at to say, what are we adding and does it have a benefit? So there is potentially a benefit here if it's actually introducing microbes. I did try to look at some of the, on a, when I, the, the breakdown I was given was a great big spreadsheet that told me species by species by species. And it told me, whether or not it was present in the different samples that I was looking at. And I did try to do some species breakdowns and Google some species names and find some research papers that talked about these species names that were present in the, in the fish water. Um, but what kept happening to me is I would find that it was, you know, a soil microbe that was found in the soils of Siberia, but it didn't have any other information about what its function was or what, it, what purpose it served in the soil in Siberia. So I think part of the issue is just that, um, bacteria themselves are such a huge category and there's so many of them in soil in general uh, that it's very hard to get detailed information again previous speaker might be able to help me out with that there is a list that i had seen in there about the different research they had been doing so maybe they're they've got some information that i can go back to and be able to kind of refine this a little bit more um so this is just kind of talking about the idea can we add better stuff? So instead of just dumping the fish effluent without doing anything to it from the tank, um, can we do something that will make the fertilizer better? So rem remembering that you need more nitrogen early on in the vegetative stage and then less during flowering, and then you need to increase your phosphor phosphorus content during flowering. Uh, we're also thinking about the work that we're doing with Dr. Viktor Lobanov, who's at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden. So he is trying to figure out ways um, to make use of fish waste as natural fertilizers, as energy sources. He has a whole bunch of ideas. And part of his idea is creating this biodigester style tool. So one of his big goals is going to be to take that biodigester and allow it to produce like methane gas and other energy sources. But one of the other things that we're thinking about is could we use that in a different way for our purposes where we could add organic inputs uh, so, you know, products that people have grown or parts of crops that people don't use uh, into the fishways and kind of produce a better type of almost like a compost tea, I guess. Um, and could we use that to target the specific nutrient compositions at specific stages of the grow if we have this system in place? So that's kind of one of the other components that we're looking at is how do we take this fish effluent and maximize it specifically for cannabis? Yeah. Yes. Um, so that was a study that oh, is also... So, <laughs> just want to uh, just want to jump in there. So, uh, Steve, is Dr. Lobanov speaking this year? Oh, he's not speaking this year. No, but he did speak last year. Yeah, he did speak last year. So, I just want to bring that up. So, if if it wasn't for this conference last year, he spoke either right before me or right after me, and uh, uh, I watched his presentation on everything he was doing in biodigesters. Now, again, back to our research is moving forward, moving forward slower, slower than we like. I spoke with them the next week after the conference, and we're still working on implementing a joint research project that'll hopefully be uh, this this calendar year. Uh, but, you know, because of this conference, I saw the work he was doing. I reached out right away. It was it was compelling. It was a compelling presentation. And I thought, you know, uh, I got to geek out with this guy and see if we can advance some of this body of work together. Uh, so it's so important to 
to uh you know to have these communities for us to come together and you know see what everybody's working on and where can we not double up and how can we accelerate uh the the uh the, these projects you know as a as a as a group right so you go ahead gareth okay uh, so he, that's that's one of the questions we're also trying to ask. I feel like what I've done so far with this presentation is that here's some questions I asked and here's the questions it raised. I feel like that's kind of what happened to me while I was doing this research. Uh, so some of the limitations, the mass data shows that there's potential for fish effluent, but we haven't fully realized it, right? A 3% increase yield, you always want any increase you can get, but we also want to see, okay, how do I drive 3% to 8% or how do I drive it to 15%? Uh, we had limitations for cannabinoid testing and terpene testing, so we're a little bit disappointed we weren't able to bring more to the table on that front, but we're hoping that that's something we can uh, re rectify in the future. And again, just the overwhelming amount of microbial data needs a lot more study. Again, I just touched the surface level and then kind of set it up so that someone else could come in and continue on with these questions that we're raising. Uh, some of the things we're hoping we can do in the future uh, would be repeat sampling. In science, the first thing you have to do is figure out, okay, I've done this. Can I do it again? Can I get the same results more than once? Because, you know, you have to demonstrate that what you're doing is repeatable. Uh, target microbes. So can we figure out if there's specific microbes in our fish effluent that we want to try to maximize or target and kind of identify as most important? Uh, can we manipulate our water microbiome? So maybe that's this the biodigester type of tool that we're talking about with the work with Dr. Lobanov. Maybe that's talking about what we're feeding the fish. There's a whole bunch of ways that we could potentially try to manipulate that microbiome. Uh, testing these compost tea style um, fish effluents versus our traditional soil amendments that you're scooping on top and then watering in as you go. Uh, and then retesting our mass yield results and getting some potency results. One of the other things that I kind of thought of at the last second as I was uh, going for Christmas break and I just kind of threw a piece of paper on the director of cultivation's desk and said, well, okay, what about this? If we see that there's lots of nitrogen fixers that appear to be present, in the fish effluent, what would happen if you only used it during the early stages of the grow when it needs lots of nitrogen fixation and then you stopped adding it for the second half where you need less nitrogen, you wanna focus more on phosphorus. And then what if you did it in reverse? So we've kind of said, what if it's about timing of fish effluent instead of just always using fish effluent? And I think that she is gonna to try to take that on, um, but it was just kind of another question at the last second that we're throwing out there that lets us continue looking at what is fish effluent doing and trying to put a little bit of data together to look at that. Um, again, observationally, we've been noticing the fish effluent when we're using it seems to hold the plants healthy longer. They don't seem to need as many chemical amendments. They don't need to seem, them, uh, seem to need them quite as soon. Uh, so it's always nice if you can avoid putting chemically synthesized products onto your cannabis. Um, but yeah, so we're just trying to put together what we can here. And we're going to keep trying to drive this project step by step, question by question, <laughs> data piece by data piece. And, until and we I just I just want to clarify that when Stewart Farms uses amendments, the only amendments we ever use is an organically sourced amendment. So we actually don't use synthetic. Oh, apologies. Uh, okay, thank you. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> so just just in case that's being misunderstood. <laughs> um, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, but our organic chemicals are still chemicals too. So if we're talking about just chemical category and reference, but we don't use any synthetics, no. Okay. Uh, so that's kind of where I was able to go with the information we had. Um, so I'll stop sharing that now and I'll just, I'll kind of step back a little bit now and see if anyone has questions they want to throw at Tanner. Let's see here. 
juggling, uh, making sure the, the, uh, the panel next to it gets their, their connections together. Um, let's see, I don't see any questions. I think people are just kind of, uh, a lot of people said, wow, that's really neat. Uh, microbe universe, I don't see too many questions at the moment. Yeah, the, uh, the microbial universe is, is overwhelmed. I mean, I get excited when I see the uh, endless amount of colors on the bar chart and the layers and as it builds up and, and it, re it really, really demonstrates how much there is to unpack in general. And, uh, you know, I, we, we're all familiar with this statement when you're in the soil community you, and you hear it all the time, you say it all the time, oh, we know more about the stars than the, than the microbes underneath underneath our feet well you know when you get into a research project like this you can see how quick <laughs> you kind of see that real time like holy shit <laughs> there really is a lot under there <laughs> and i think it really emphasized for us too um the need for baby steps i guess kind of saying okay we thought maybe we could dive in and be a lot further along and then we got that data back and we both just looked at it and went oh, that's a lot of information to try to start unpacking. So we started with some baby steps and said, here's some questions. Here's some ways we might be able to tackle answering some of those questions. Um, but yeah, it was pretty exciting to just get some results that were meaningful and saying, look, here's some actual identifiable things that are in your soil and not just saying, well, we know there's stuff in there because someone told us that there would be stuff in there if we put fish effluent on our living soil. So yeah, so, so this year... Uh, this year, we're actually going to be going to be transition transferring this same type of research over to our new genetic uh, daily grape. Uh, the exciting thing about that is we're going to be running two to three rooms of daily grape at any one time. Uh, we spent the last two years hunting through our genetic library. We have a very strong foundation of what we view as stabilized and available to commercialize genetics and as much as from a from a you know genetic fanatic perspective i would have loved to continue to have my entire facility dedicated to pheno hunting for another 12 to 24 months we decided it's time to take our premier genetic and spend the next 12 months or so monocropping but then the, the new exciting thing about that is you park the hunting and you stop building up new genetics to learn about. And now we can run multiple of these trials repeatedly back to back. We're going to have 10 to 15 harvest of daily grape over the next 12 months that we can run repeatable trials on. Of course, this foundational information came from a different genetic. It came from dosi cake. So... It may or may not lose some relevance. I don't think it will because we're looking at the water microbes and the soil microbes, and but we'll have a different genetic to infer to at least to see if there's any commonalities between the dosi cake foundation research and the daily grape research. So pretty excited about the next 12 months of monocropping from a research and commercial perspective. So find anything particularly different or interesting um, when you're doing your pheno hunts? Anything noteworthy or unique? I know I'm doing a, a large pheno hunt here right now in Thailand. Um, what have you found that was uh, you know, interesting outliers or funky terpene profiles or what are some of the different things that you found? Oh, just in general? Oh man, all kinds of stuff. Um, uh, uh, one, one genetic in particular, uh, 
one of our phenos of royal limes that we popped from that's an emerald mountain uh genetic uh it was this isn't to do with the aquaponics or the living soil necessarily although it might it was just oozing oozing uh uh you know oil or sap right and uh and it would it would come out of the bud and it would look like little amber droplets coming out of the weed and we had about two phenotypes that that did that and i i've seen some images of that before but i we've never we, we you know these are the first couple of phenos we found that were that were just oozing out oil and uh i mean i thought that was just amazing we have like dozens of pictures uh of that and and, and, it, and then the, it solidifies such that you could just pull it off you could put it right in the dab rig right so full spectrum fresh harvested solidified oil <laughs> from loyal royal limes so i thought i thought that was the i thought that was pretty awesome yeah <laughs> that's pretty cool uh, anything yeah. uh unique as far as smell or, or terpene profile well this daily grape i there there's there's a uh, reason we're going all in on on this daily grape in 2023 and and the fantastic thing about it when when it was getting judged in that cannabis cup this past summer and it was all blind well except we knew which jar was ours because it was the purple jar right so i i knew right away i was like okay there's our daily grape uh but as the judges were passing it around we heard oh that smells really grapey right and 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 you know it's easy to get a very identifiable lemon and a very identifiable gas but it's a lot rarer to have a grape that denotes grape uh on on the nose because that's a lot of nuance of sweetness and gas coming off of that genetic uh and uh so so the yeah so this this particular genetic a grape that has that grape those grapey notes right on the nose and, and pretty identifiable um uh, yeah that i'd say this is our most exciting on the nose terpene profile and it's smooth and it's energetic and uh uh you know and it's got a sweet gas aftertaste but a a grape a, an upfront grapey flavor uh so no that was pretty exciting we we've is, got is that hubba bubba grape or is that uh welch's grape juice grape that's that's I, what i gotta ask well you know that's a great question i i i would definitely say it's closer to welch's than hubba bubba i i you know but it's not it's a that's mild a, that's welch. actually way more exciting for me <laughs> yeah i'd call it a, a mild welch's uh you know when i think of that hubba bubba kind of taste it's it's a bit synthetic -y, right you know uh, uh leaning and uh yeah no it's it's we're we're really excited and you know you can only launch genetics i mean luckily we feel like we've had a pretty good field trial on it too but you know you launch genetics you love and you understand why you love them for such reasons and that's the best thing you could head into market with at any given at any given moment you know in an ocean in an ocean of uh of uh competition right so and then and then what's the experience and the experience is where what brings it all together you know the the look of it the bag appeal the 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 nuance of the the nose but then a nice energetic strain that doesn't couch you that kind of keeps you level no you know and and as somebody who is sensitive to 
uh, high terpinaline strains that uh, like uh, I lemon flavored strains send my heart into my throat, you know, too much anxiety, too fast, too rushed. Uh, this is not that. This is energy, at least for me and many of the smokers, energy without the without the raciness, right? So. Well, you got me awesome. convinced. <laughs> <laughs> you come see me. We'll smoke lots. <laughs> have, uh, have you had any other interesting uh, discoveries or, um, you know, observations with your, your cultivation in the last year? You know, just the continuous yield improvements i mean a lot of that is team driven of course and process driven on top of what is your grow medium and how are you using it um we uh, the the really the resilience in the system i mean we're we're more than two years in uh we there's never been a speck of pm in our facility ever we've never sprayed we've never had to use a synthetic uh, uh we haven't had any uh you know maybe we've had a genetic or two but that would be in the pheno hunt where we would get some uh botrytis and then that would get called right away or a little bit you know but we we haven't had any uh bar barely any issues you know our our system is really healthy and really clean and we always pass our microbials right we always pass our microbials now canadian microbials versus australian microbials versus you know what germany wants those are all different stories uh but within canada we've never had to irradiate and uh nor do we want to and you know i think that's a testament to there's no need to be afraid of living systems and and there's all this apprehension from hydroponic communities and basically a whole side of the farming the farming industry where the sentiment is microbials bad and how do you control that well we just have a really clean farm and we operate with soil we operate in top-notch cleanliness cleanliness with soil and then that all just comes down to how are your people potting up and where do they pot up and then do you sweep up you sweep up after yourself um so it's just it's just been honestly a fantastic a fantastic experience one thing i'd like to note that was in our presentation uh is you know if you're using a living soil medium that you need to make sure you are working with a supplier that is going to keep their mixtures consistent or if you're the supplier of your own living soil that if it ain't broke maybe don't try to fix it because you know you can you you could really throw yourself off inadvertently i'll we've we've never tried to make our own soil so i'll just stick to us as as somebody who needs a reliable living soil partner in in general my comment as you're doing your operation if you're working with a vendor that never changes their formulations and you're very confident in that great and you you know the baseline of that soil and what you can get out of it 
But if there's other suppliers with their living soil mixtures out there, give them a shot every now and then, right? Because you want to see if you want to make sure that by sticking to your guns, you're not leaving 10 or 15% yield on the table just by a swap to a better baseline baseline mixture. So for us, that's just going to be a rule in an ongoing basis. So, you know, you want a consistent supplier. You don't want to sit on your hands and assume you're always using the best mixture forever in a day because there might be something new, right? So that was a big lesson over 20, 2022, you know, and we saved money. We switched our soil, our yields went up and our cost per pot went down. <laughs> so it was, it's a pretty good move. <laughs> oh yeah. I know we we have a giant industrial size mixer here in Thailand and we just, it was way too frustrating to find it. Just like you're saying, the consistency of the products, it was way easier just to get the ingredients, mix it here and yeah. just not stress about it anymore, you know? Yeah, because then you know it's the same mixture every time. And yeah, yeah, because you don't, yeah, absolutely. If you need to do that, if you need to take control of it, take control of it for sure. We, we just ended up going to a large supplier out of, uh, out of Ontario that's been at it for years and years and years. And they have good labs and, and, uh, and it's just very, very, uh, uh, very consistent because, you know, we're trying to do, when you're doing research, you need that. You know, you can't have your, your inputs flying all over the map, right? Oh yeah. Somebody else asked, uh, do you, any aquaponic operators put the expired fishes in their grow containers like Native Americans used to? Um, or if my third grade teacher was lying about that. Um, so we don't, uh, I don't know of any cannabis people that are putting dead fish in their pots, but we certainly use FAA here, at least where I am, and I've used it many other places. Uh, at least for our soil applications as a nitrogen uh, amendment um, that we do use or hey if it's taco tuesday we'll take the spines and the leftover meat <laughs> and the fins and that goes with the faa you know nice yeah no we've we've had uh, we've had some fish escape or jump from the tank and uh we do bury them uh on our property uh to uh add fertility to uh to the land outside but uh but yeah not we don't mix the we don't mix them into our compost pile uh either just because it'll attract animals and and uh and whatnot but that works but 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 my comment to that is that does work if you take uh, a dead fish or you know some other sort of nutrient source and you bury it a foot and a half or right under the root zone and you leave it there uh yeah no that 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 does work because there's extra nitrogen down you know the fish is slowly going to break down so my comment to that is it'll work just you know do you want to you, you're you're also you're also inviting you know does the fox smell it and show up at your carrot garden <laughs> or your tomato patch right <laughs> It definitely don't need polar bears digging up digging up your yard there in Canada, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think if we start seeing polar bears in New Brunswick, we're going to have a, a some bigger problems to be worrying about <laughs> whether or not they're getting at the fish in the garden. Yeah, the ice age will have arrived. <laughs> yeah, no, we uh, we got to watch out for moose mostly uh, uh, down here. But anyway, we can hockey fans, right? 
Moose, yeah, moose drunken hockey fans, uh, but uh, I just uh, I just have a maple syrup gun that I spray at the moose to make them uh, <laughs> keep them away, keep them at bay. <laughs> well, um, anything else you guys want to mention here in the last? Uh, we have about two minutes left uh, before we have to switch gears. Uh, anything else you guys wanted to mention before we wrap up? Yeah, I, I would just say uh, if you're in Canada. Uh, Please look for Rebound uh, at your local cannabis dispensary. We're pretty much in every province uh, across across the country. If you're in British Columbia, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, uh, you, you can get our uh, Daily Grape coming out pretty soon and our Britney's Frozen Lemons and our Royal Kush, which was Mandelbrot's Royal Kush, which we're still running as well. And to follow us on social media for everybody in general, no matter where you are, we'd appreciate it. On Instagram, it's at Stuart Farms Life. And you have to type in the full word because we're shadow banned, because we're an evil bath bomb making, pain cream making cannabis company trying to ruin <laughs> lives. Uh, and uh, uh, Facebook at StuartFarms.life and same on uh, Instagram. We, we just appreciate if you're interested, you know, your support or input or following us. So. That's great. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. I appreciate Kara uh, giving that wonderful and informative presentation as well. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks so much for having us. Please support these companies. They took the time to educate us during this conference. If you're looking for more education on aquaponic cannabis, Please consider the Aquaponic Cannabis Masterclass at apmjclass.com, featuring over seven days of in-depth, hands-on educational content with Marty Waddell and Stephen Reisner as your guides through the aquaponic cannabis universe. We'll cover everything from construction of large commercial facilities, home size systems, backyard systems, nutrients, pest control, diseases, everything you can think of. And, uh, and so much more. So be sure to check that out at apmjclass.com. And if you're looking for aquaponic cannabis or living soil uh, pest control courses, please check out uh, thepestclass.com where we have a huge in-depth course on pest control, how to make your own um, biocontrols, as well as in-depth guides and identification guides for a whole slew of different pests that you might encounter in your aquaponics garden and it's not strictly just geared towards cannabis uh, it's also geared towards vegetables as well so be sure to check that out if it's something you think you might need to improve in your education <laughs>